Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to my podcast and my YouTube channel. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Jim Jackson. He's a neuropsychologist at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And he's one of the world's leading authorities on mental health effects of chronic illness. Actually, Dr. Jackson contacted me a couple of months ago and I was really, even for me, it was a surprise what he told me. He contacted me asking, well, let's talk about long COVID and the impact that it's had on these patients. It's millions of patients. And we, what we see here at the hospital is suicidality is going up. A lot of them talking to us about suicide because they've lost hope that they're getting better. And one of the things we were talking, you know, previously, uh, b before I started recording the podcast was, I was amazed that this is so under the radar. No one is talking about long COVID anymore, even COVID and it's off, off the headlines. It's like, it's gone, but there are millions of people suffering. So I'm so glad, so grateful, Dr. Jackson, that you contacted me to talk about this. It's happening to so many people and no one is, re is really talking about that. And in the link be be you know, between long COVID and suicide. So thank you for doing that and for being here with us. Paula, it's so great to be here with you. You are uh, really thoughtful and sincere, and it is a big problem that, that we're about to discuss. It does fly under the radar. I published a book. We'll talk about that later. But the point is, it came out on May 9th about long COVID. And May 11th was when the United States government declared an end, basically, mm. to the pandemic. Kind of kind of took, a, um, took an eraser and just erased it off the whiteboard. Yeah, the it's pandemic, gone. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's gone, right? So your it's book, gone. let me just say the title of your book, and I will have the link to the book in my, uh, in, on my notes. It's called Clearing the Fog from Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, a practical guide. And we will have some practical tips at the end. But I want to start by asking, why do you think it's so under the radar right now? And even doctors are not asking clients, for example, the patient comes in and they have all these symptoms, and are they asking if this is long COVID? And are they even investigating the cognitive impacts that it has and the psychological impact that long COVID has had on these patients? It's a good question. Why does it fly under the radar? I think part of it is by the time 2023 arrived, there was so much fatigue in the healthcare community, in the culture at large, that I think they just wanted to put their hands over their eyes and and pretend, you know, like an ostrich with its head in the sand, that COVID was gone. And I and and I think people have convinced themselves perhaps that it's not important anymore. You know, when I see patients with long COVID, with new cases of long COVID, 
Um, they go see their doctor. Cognitive problems are rarely discussed. Mental health problems are rarely discussed. Solutions are rarely discussed. It's really out of, out of sight, out of mind. And what we're left with, though, is we're left with millions of long COVID survivors who feel really neglected, who feel marginalized, who feel very alone. And that's a real problem. And I think um, it's certainly not the cause of suicidal ideation, but when we think of why people feel suicidal, one of the reasons I think, one of the reasons among many is that, again, they feel like no one understands them. They feel like no one's there for them. And not only that, they feel like everyone has conveniently forgotten about them. So here they are. They don't have a lot of interpersonal resources. They don't have a lot of financial resources. They don't have a lot of cognitive resources. They're in the ocean. They literally are drowning and they feel like no one is really interested in throwing them a life preserver. And that's really discouraging. But that, I think, is what they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, is related to suicide is feeling alone with the pain. And that's what happens to them. And even the doctors are not even considering all these changes that they're going through and the pain that they're going through, psychological pain and physical pain, right? Yeah. Both of those. Um, chronic pain is a very real problem, certainly in our patients, literal physical pain. But the psychic pain, right, the mental health pain of um, of being alone and also the pain of feeling like you've lost a lot of ability that you're never going to get back. I think that's really hard. You know, for many of our patients with long COVID, before they developed COVID, they were doing fine, right? Like they were, mm -hmm. they were going to work, they were jogging five days a week, they were working out at the gym, they were engaged with their family and friends. And for some of them, overnight that stopped right that changed and so there's a lot of grieving that needs to be done and a lot of them are stuck i think frankly in that place of protracted grieving right complicated grieving where um they're really longing for eden right they're longing for that situation they were in before that they can't quite get back to they spend a lot of time understandably missing that, and they don't quite know what to do with the new deficits that they have. So it's a hard spot for them to be in. Mm -hmm. A lot of losses. So much loss and um, not a lot of understanding of what to do with that. You know, if we think about loss conventionally, if you lose a spouse, you lose a child, um, the community rallies around you typically, right? People bring you meals from church in the South. They drop off a plate of barbecue and some biscuits at your house. You know, they think of you, they care for you. But um, I think many of our long COVID patients would say, no one's offered to bring a meal to my house, right? Even symbolically, mm -hmm. no one has offered to bring a meal to my house. Mm -hmm. I lost my life due to long COVID and no one's remembering me. And that sense of um, aloneness, that sense of isolation, that sense of being forgotten, it really eats away at them and it makes life really hard. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Jackson, do we have numbers? How many people, what is the scope of this problem? Because I've seen different numbers. I've been 100 million people in the world, 11% of the US population now has long COVID. Do we have numbers? It's really debated what the numbers are. Um, you'll hear anywhere from 200 million or so at the top end to probably more cautious estimates, which might be 60 or 70 million. If you take that 200 million number, that's more people than live in the country of Mexico, right? Like that's almost the same number of people that live in Bangladesh. That's more people than live in Russia. If you take the 60 or 70 million number, that's smaller, but that still is five times the number of people that live in New York City, right? That's mm -hmm. the number of people that live in San Paulo, Mexico City, plus New York City combined. It's twice the number of people that live in California. It's a gigantic number, even if even if the people who are talking about this are overestimating. Let's just imagine that they are. I don't think they are, but for the sake of argument, let's imagine they are. Even if they are, and we cut that number in half, or by two thirds, it's still a gigantic public health problem and it has ripple effects, it touches everything. So um, we need to be concerned now. Um, it's also true that there probably are a fair number of people that don't show up in that number because they either don't know they have long COVID or they suspect they do but they don't want to tell people about it. They don't want to tell their family. They don't want to tell their provider, partly because they worry about being dismissed, partly because they worry about being disbelieved. We regularly have situations where patients with long COVID of ours have mental health concerns, and they're very reluctant to talk to their healthcare providers about those because they're afraid that if they, if they endorse anxiety or depression, or symptoms of PTSD, they're worried that that medical provider will say, aha, it's all in your head, right? It's just mm. your head, you admitted it. So they're really reluctant to endorse. So I think the answer is a heck of a lot of people have long COVID, more people in your sphere of influence have long COVID than you think. I think that's the answer. And I think a lot of people have long COVID and they don't know. Right. Right. Exactly. Like the same thing with people who had COVID. A lot of people had COVID and never knew because they never took you know, the test and they were asymptomatic or, you know, so maybe they don't even know. Are there kids with long COVID? I mean, what is the demographics? There are kids. Uh, now, kids, not surprisingly, are a little more resilient in a lot of respects than adults, especially older adults. So I do think it's less of a problem in kids and teens. And yet, this is a really big and yet, and yet we see teens, we see examples of teens um, whose lives have been turned upside down completely. You know, people, uh, not long ago, I, I a family reached out to me uh, from somewhere in the South and uh, they had a high school student, very high achieving, had big plans for college, et cetera. And um, he is uh, he's completely out of school. He's being homeschooled, doesn't have the energy to go to school. 
um, can't run track, can't engage in the activities he did before. So, so that's less common than in adults, but it's by no means rare. And when we see it in, um, in kids, it's really worrisome because, as you know, you're an adult and I'm an adult and we're fully formed, right? We've already developed, right? For good mm -hmm. or already developed. But um, when you see long COVID in kids and teens, the problem is that long COVID, it impacts that developmental trajectory they're on, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to shape the rest of their life. And it's often going to limit them in important ways. So it's really worrisome. Yeah. But uh, how do I was just asking myself as you were talking. So this kid now has no motivation. He he sounds depressed. How would you know that it's long COVID and not depression, for example? It's a great question. I, I think one answer is you may not completely know, right? Like mm -hmm. having 100% certainty about this is hard. But often what we see is we see a situation where someone was functioning in a particular way, they're, they're operating at a high level, let's say, there's an event that happens in time, they test positive for COVID, and then shortly after that, they go from functioning at a really high level to a greatly reduced level. In that situation, it could be anything, but we're assuming, because it's the only thing that happened, right? Mm -hmm. We're assuming it's the effects of COVID. Could it be something else? It could. Um, I'm a big believer in Occam's razor. I remember this concept from philosophy class. And, and that basically is this idea that the simplest explanation is usually the right one, right? Mm -hmm. the so best, the best one, right? right? It's the best one, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's the best one. And, and that's what we see. If, if you were a college track athlete, as, as one of our uh, patients was, and you develop COVID, and immediately after developing COVID, you now can barely walk one time around a track. Maybe it's not the COVID, but probably it is uh, yeah. per Occam's razor. Okay. One of the things that surprised me, because when you first contacted me, the idea that I had of this of these patients who developed long COVID were patients who were really critical. They went to ICUs, they were hospitalized, maybe they had, you know, um, needed oxygen. But no, you say that even the asymptomatic ones develop long COVID. Well, you're in good company because this is one of the things that surprised me also. It surprised me too. Um, long before the pandemic started, my colleagues and I at Vanderbilt had been working with critically ill patients in the ICU. We'd been working with them for 20 years. And um, I was very familiar before the pandemic with the effects of being on oxygen, on a ventilator, uh, heavily sedated again in the ICU. And early in the pandemic, we saw many of those patients, right? People who had COVID who were critically ill in the ICU for 30 days or 45 days for 70 days. And they have problems, right? They have problems of many kinds and those problems are often severe. So that's not surprising. But to your point, um, what was really surprising was that we began to encounter people who also were having brain injuries. They were also physically debilitated. They also had mental health concerns 
and they were hardly sick at all, right? They'd only been sick for a day, right? They had a, a low-grade fever that lasted for um, less than a week, and they were debilitated. So if you were to ask me what was the one thing about the pandemic that you wouldn't have expected, that was it for me. That caught me off guard. It still surprises me. Yeah. For those who are listening and they're wondering, wow, so maybe this that I'm feeling right now, maybe it's not depression or maybe I it's not because I hurt my back because I'm having this pain. How? What are the main symptoms that you see? Yeah, I like to talk about uh, long COVID involving what I call the the unholy trinity of symptoms, if you will. And that unholy trinity is cognitive problems, it's fatigue, and it's mental health problems. If you look at the, the rates at which people with long COVID endorse difficulties and where they endorse them, they're mainly in those three areas, cognition, fatigue, mental health. So on the cognitive side, people report problems with attention, they report problems with something called executive functioning, which is planning and organizing. They report some problems with memory and a lot of problems with processing speed. Paula, processing speed refers to how slowly or how quickly it takes me to process things. How quickly does it take me to arrive at a solution to a riddle? Problem solve, yeah. Problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. Processing speed. In the fatigue arena, that's pretty straightforward, right? People are profoundly tired. We see those symptoms. In the mental health arena, we see three main things. We see anxiety, depression, in some cases, PT PTSD. And in some small percentage of patients, we see new onset OCD after developing COVID. And occasionally, we see symptoms of psychosis. Not often, but um, more often than you would expect. So those are the main things that we find. Do you have a friend or a loved one who struggles with suicidal thoughts, ideation, or even previous attempts? If you do, I have some information for you. I know that the situation is scary, and many times we want to do the best we can to help, but we don't know how. Over the course of my 15 years working in this field, I have learned how to address these issues and that's what I want to share with you. And for that, I have just created an online course that will guide you step by step on how to sit down and have this difficult conversation. The course is called How to Help Suicidal People, and I purposely took a very straightforward approach so that when you finish, you will feel prepared to take action in a safe, non-judgmental, and compassionate way. You will learn about the mental state of a suicidal person, how it impacts the way they view their personal crisis, how to bring hope into the conversation, how to prepare yourself to listen to them, especially when they talk about their emotional pain, how to create a safety plan, how to assess their risk level, and much, much more. The course comes in six modules and it's all videos with very simple language and reading materials for quick reference. If you think that this course is for you, 
click on the link on my notes or go to my website understandsuicide.com and click on the course tab. There you can also watch a free sample and have more information about the course. Thank you. Now that let's talk about suicide because you just mentioned OCD hallucinations. Is it how is that linked to suicide? And the first thing that comes to me when you talked about the hallucinations is brain inflammation. So how is long COVID related, and why do you think that people, the patients, are talking about suicide more often now? Well. I to your first point, there's no question that when we talk about the pathophysiology, you know, fancy word for sort of the biological explanation, right? When we talk about the pathophysiology of long COVID, we think of inflammation, right? We think of it sort of early and often because there's no doubt it plays a prominent role. Is it the only thing? It's not, but it certainly plays a big role. Um, how that exactly relates to suicide, I, I'm not sure, but what we often see with regard to suicide is that we see people who have had such dramatic losses in the context of long COVID, loss of function and loss of energy, loss of income, often loss of family and friendships, things of that sort. We see those dramatic losses and we see people for better or worse who have concluded that they're not going to get any better, right? They've struggled for yeah, a so year hopelessness. or two. Yeah. And then the hopelessness sets in, right? Yeah. And I think some of them think, and I know this because they've told me, um, I'm a burden to my family. I'm a burden to the world. There's no scenario where I'm going to get better. I tried to be strong for as long as I could. And I'm going to deal with this in a way that seems logical to me, given those circumstances, I'm going to end my life. Uh, that's that's often how people the arrive there on the heels yeah. of profound loss. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm even thinking now with all these the what, what do you call it the three what the unholy unholy Trinity yeah Trinity. the unholy Trinity yeah and I'm thinking about treatment if you I, I can't even, if you put yourself in their shoes if you are having mental fog for example memory you know brain fog as they say and you're having pain how do you even start treatment who do you go to so what would you say for someone who is listening and maybe they know someone who said they're having all these problems you know physical pain but they're they're having brain fog their memory is kind of gone and fragmented who do they see first it's a great question um if you look at one resource that has become popular in the United States, that is long COVID clinics. There are specialty clinics, and we would like there to be more of them. But right now, I think there are about 250 in the United States. Um, there may be one or two states without them. Most states have four or five long COVID clinics. And those are specialty resources where people are experts in long COVID. And if there's a long COVID clinic near you, you know, you can Google a list, that would be the place to go, a long mm -hmm. COVID clinic. Short of that, though, um, I think going to your internist, if you have one, and expressing these symptoms is the right thing to do. I, I think what often happens, Paula, and, and you know this, is that sometimes the reason people don't seek mental health treatment, I, I think there are two reasons. 
Um, one of them is for people of a certain age, there's a stigma, right? There's an incredible stigma and there's a feeling that you're a failure, you're a loser, you're weak, you're insipid if you can't deal with your own mental health problems and the worry that you'll be judged for those. So I think that's hurdle number one, reminding people that, you know, mental mental illness doesn't just occur to weak people, right? Mental illness occurs to everyone, right? Like there's no shame in it, that's one. But I think the second thing is a lot of people are not aware that mental health treatment can be very effective, right? Like if we look at the, the data, if you can get the right treatment for anxiety, the right treatment for depression, for PTSD, your mental health can get better, right? Like over time, it can get drastically better. But I think many people are not aware of that. They think nobody can help me, right? Like no one can help me. The truth is, if you connect with a thoughtful mental health provider, they actually can help you. But people don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the tools because that's what your book brings us. So I want you to please share with my audience of those who are listening and see how can you, it's, this is a disease that you're going to live with, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that, okay, here's the pill that you take and you'll be okay. So how can you manage long COVID? In, in my book, Clearing the Fog, um, and, and for people on YouTube, I, I'm, I'm holding it up here, I'm Clearing the Fog. It's very colorful, and, and that's... I love that. I love the cover. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's deliberate, right? It, it's filled with hope. Yeah, and, and in the yeah. book, I talk about my own mental health journey, which has been complicated in recent years. You know, in 2018, 2019, really out of the blue during a stressful season in my life, I developed pretty severe OCD. And um, I had never had OCD before. I didn't want OCD, right? And I, I went to see a psychologist who's become very dear to me. And I said, let's get rid of this. Like, let's just, let's just nuke it. Let's burn it down, right? I want to get rid of it. And she said, in so many words, um, well, yeah, we'll work on it. We can improve it probably a lot. But you may have to learn to live with it. And Paula... Um, I was not really interested in that. I didn't like the mm -hmm. idea of learning to live with it, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think anyone likes the idea of learning to live with a chronic illness. And in my case, what I learned over time was that I could coexist with some unpleasant things that I didn't like, right? If I could find some meaning, if I could um, learn some tools and, and recognize that it wasn't my fault, I could learn to live with some hard things. And so one of our key interventions in this long COVID space is acceptance. I don't mean by that that you have to love your long COVID. Who would? I mean by that, though, that you can learn to make room for, you can learn to make space for unwanted thoughts and feelings and emotions. And when people learn to make space for those, in the context of long COVID, that's when we often see them start to really improve. Mm -hmm. and, and how, what does that look like? I mean, learning to live with it. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a really good question. It starts, I think, with the mindset that that is even a possibility, right? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. desirable. Um, for me, when I heard the words 
could you consider learning to accept it? I really slammed the door on that, right? I was completely close to it. So it starts, I think, with patients being open to the possibility that that's even possible, right? So that's where we start. Let's let's consider the possibility that you could live with something you don't want, right? Um, and then uh, from there, um, we help people recognize a range of things, things like the fact that um, you're more than your thoughts, right? You're more than your feelings. We can help you find a way um, to define yourself a little differently. We can help you find a way not to allow these things to define you. We can help you find a way to focus on small wins, right? We can help you realize that if you can find a purpose in suffering, you can suffer a lot, right? And still mm -hmm. manage. So mm -hmm. those sorts of insights are things that we focus on using an approach to therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, which has been a game changer for me and for many of my patients, ACT. Yeah, I've interviewed a couple of um, clinicians that use it. I love ACT. I think yeah, it's me too. Uh, the most, yeah. Uh, you, one of the things, one of your chapters talks about reframing your new normal. Yeah. So what does that mean? It, it, is it part of the acceptance? It, it very much is reframing. And, and it's not just a, um, it's not just a trick, right? Sometimes reframe, reframing feels like a trick, right? I go to the, I go to the frame store, I buy a brand new frame, I put it over an ugly picture. I've reframed it, right? Sometimes yeah, it feels no, like but it works. We know it yeah. works. <laughs> but but this is more than than that. I'll I'll give you I'll give you a quick anecdote that I think will be really practical. Mm -hmm. um, when I developed my OCD, I divided my life very quickly into before OCD and after OCD. That's how I thought about it, and. Um, as I was in the throes of my OCD, I would often fantasize about this perfect life that I had before I got OCD, right? And I would feel really badly in the process, right? Well, the truth is I've had a pretty good life, but my life wasn't perfect before I got OCD, right? It wasn't perfect. There's no perfect life that I could mm -hmm. go back to. I had problems like people have problems even before my OCD. And so as I started to recognize that, it made my current situation seem a little less bad by comparison, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yes, right? it does. Yeah. Right. So that would be that would be one thing. Um, a more advanced technique, if you will, and when I say more advanced, I mean it takes a while to get there. Mm -hmm. A more advanced technique would be to get to the place where you can see some unique blessings, advantages, features of this struggle that you didn't have before. I'm much more empathic now than I used to be with people, right? I'm kinder to patients and probably animals too, right? Like I'm more tender-hearted than I was before I got OCD. Um, am I glad that I developed OCD? No. Can I acknowledge that it has created some growth in my life? Yes. So um, telling patients by shaking your finger 
hey, you've got to see the good in this is exactly the wrong thing to do, right? That's really mm -hmm. disrespectful. But inviting them to move into a place where they can consider that their life with long COVID has a purpose, that there may be some blessings for them in this, that's a really lovely intervention if you can do it at the right time. Yeah. I want you to talk about one of the other uh, chapters. You say harness connection. I talk a lot on my, because I, I am, I'm an attachment-based therapist. I love uh, attachment. And I believe that the most healing uh, thing or tool that you, you can have in life is a good, healthy relationship. So why is harnessing connection helpful for long COVID patients? Connection is so important. I mean, the general comment would be to affirm what you just said, right? Like connection is so important for all of us, right? So mm -hmm. important, especially in this very kind of hyper-individualistic culture that we're in, right? Where everybody's competitive, where you drive into your garage, you shut the door, you don't come out of the house until the next day, you don't know your neighbors, right? Like long COVID has accentuated all of that and it's a problem culturally, I think. But, but for people with long COVID, um, they often feel uniquely isolated. So for one, they're very reluctant to do anything that could cause them to get COVID again, meaning that many of them don't want to go to parties. They don't want to go to concerts. They don't want to go to their kids' school sporting events. Or maybe a better way to say it is they want to go, but they're afraid to go, right? So they don't go. So, so natural sources of connection, they just don't pursue. Um, that makes them much more isolated. Some of them, too, feel pretty alone because they feel like, as they have struggled with long COVID, many people close to them have said, you know, I'm tired of hanging in there with you. I'm tired of supporting you for so long. And they feel like loved ones have kind of turned their back. So they're really alone. And the the antidote, I think, to being alone, right? Loneliness is a epidemic of itself, I think, right? It's a pandemic in its own right, right? So the antidote to that, I think, is connection, right? Connecting with other people. And I, I think that's why the intervention that we do that I'm probably the most proud of here at Vanderbilt is we have support groups for people with long COVID. And they are really powerful because I'm telling you my story, you're telling me yours, we're becoming vulnerable and intimate and close in the process and it's healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are there, uh, I'm thinking about resources here, where can they go? Are there, maybe they can find, is there a place where they can find support groups for long COVID? Is it the clinics that offer that? Is there online? So where can they go? So we have um, we have five support groups at Vanderbilt. Officially, they're called peer support groups. And um, we have a waiting list of 60 or 80 people, I, I think. So they can reach out to us. It'll take a while before we can transition them into support groups. And there are not as many support groups as one might wish. Um, there are a lot of online support groups through through Facebook and, and mm. things that sort, uh, Reddit. Um, I think those are less good probably than in-person interaction. So often what we do is um, we really encourage people with long COVID to lean into 
and try to develop friendships wherever they can find them, right? If if you had friends in high school, in, in my case, you know, 35 years ago, right, that you haven't been in touch with, now's the time to pick up the phone, right? If you have a long lost cousin who you think cares about you, give them a call, right? Um, and 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 friendship, I think, requires two things, right? It requires vulnerability and it re requires time spent. So we encourage our patients, be vulnerable with other people, right? Find somebody to be vulnerable with, spend some time with them and watch a relationship start to grow. But it's it's all about leading with vulnerability and that's hard for many people to do. It is, yeah, but it takes an effort. In relationships, they take time. Uh, they take resolve and priority. You know, we talk, uh, it's one of the topics that I bring into interviews and I, I really want my audience to listen to that because it's not easy to maintain a relationship, but uh, you have to to really dedicate time and it has to be a, a priority for you. Yeah, you know, we've got a garden. My, my wife and I were talking about this just the other day. We've got a garden behind our house. There's some raised beds, at least. And I planted a lot of tomatoes in the raised beds this year. Someone was giving them away for free, heirloom tomatoes on Facebook. And so I went to their house and I picked up about 30 heirloom tomato plants and I dropped wow, them. That's in the a ground. lot of tomatoes. I planted well, some of those. I mean, it's endless. <laughs> yeah. So here's what happened though. Here, here's the point. I put them in the ground and then I completely ignored them. Okay. I completely ignored them oh. and they didn't yield any fruit, right? They didn't yield any fruit. And I think to your point, right? To your point, um, if you want to yield and a harvest of tomatoes, you've got to nurture those, right? And I think some people forget that if you want to have close and intimate friendships, you've got to actively nurture, them, right? You've got to tend to them every day. You've got to work on them. And um, we, in the in the support groups that we lead, we see people do this, right? We see a beautiful give and take where I take my mask off figuratively. I tell you my story. You listen you tell me yours and we become closer in the process and it's beautiful. And, and I pray for the day, honestly, when these support groups would be a regular part of long COVID care. They're not yet. We hope they will be one day because the transformation that we see and the sense of being known and understood in the support groups is really beautiful, Paula. It is. I know. I, I had mine yesterday. I, I am a facilitator of a peer support group for suicide, suicide loss. So I know how powerful it is you know, to look around and to know that whatever you say is not going to be judged. Exactly. And people will get it. Even if, if their experience is different, they know why they're there. There is, a, there is this thread that unites everyone. It's really beautiful. And, and in that support group, as it relates to suicide, people have been open to talking about their challenges such as they are. And um, and we invite that. And I think that's really important because you know and I know, but a lot of people don't know, talking about sadness and talking about suicide is not going to be making you more likely to do it. It's going to be making you less likely, right? But um, But I think there are a lot of patients 
really around the world, certainly in so many contexts, they think, oh my gosh, if I mention the word suicide to a provider, they're going to push a red button under the desk, right? Someone's going to show up with a net. They're going to handcuff me, take me to a hospital. And, And I think we've got to work hard to dispel that idea. And we've got to teach providers, I think, that A, you've got to take this seriously, but B, let's not overreact, right? Let's create a climate where people feel like they can talk about this safely because that's how trust develops and that's where healing is going to occur, right? Yeah, that's a great point, Dr. Jackson, because uh, we think that we as mental health providers are ready for this. But as you know, and as I know, of course, I work with this and with suicide and so many, so many clinicians don't even ask the question unless it's 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 just the intake form, something that they have to click to say, yeah, I asked. Never talk about it again because fear of liability, fear of not knowing where do I go from here, right? And it's not ju- it, the fear is not just with the patient. I'm afraid of saying because they'll take me to a hospital. Many, many mental health professionals they don't know, and they will overreact, and they will take them to a hospital. They, they will, and and I've seen a few providers where, you know, a patient mentions the word, and they're like, no, 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 no. You know, the provider's mm-hmm. not even wanting to hear it. Right? They're mm-hmm. they're trying yeah. to rush them out of the room. So I think. Um, one thing that that long COVID has done for me and my team, at least, is it has made us very comfortable talking about important issues, frank issues like suicide. And um, I'm grateful that all of our patients are alive. Some of them have been in inpatient psychiatric facilities, as is appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. When um, you have a certain level of distress and acuity, but that that sense that they're willing to tell their story and they're not hiding, that creates a a degree of safety and comfort for me. And it's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad glad you're doing this work. And thank you so much, Dr. Jackson, for contacting me, because even for me, it was 100% under the radar. I hadn't read about it. I didn't know that this was happening. And I'm so glad that we talked about this. And I'm sure that this has helped some of my listeners. Uh, Thank you so much for for contacting me and for being here and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, You're really delightful, so thoughtful, and I'm really glad to be here. I I don't like to to promote myself very much, so I'll just take a second and say, if people want to engage these issues and learn about them in more detail, they can read Clearing the Fog, which you can purchase on Amazon. Mm -hmm. If anyone would like to talk to me about how they could start a support group for long COVID patients or or how they could seek help for their own long COVID. It's easy to find me at Vanderbilt. They can Google my name. Uh, if you send me an email, I'll send you an email back. And uh, I, I, I'd welcome that invitation if people are interested, Paula. Yeah, thank you. I will have uh, on my notes, I'll have the link to your website, the link to the book directly on Amazon. So if they want to, to get it, they'll be able to. Thank okay. you. You're so kind and, and so delightful. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Understand Suicide the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, 
please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. <laughs>